Chapters seven and eight of Tenting Tonight by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seven The Second Day on the Flathead. In a way, this is a fairy story, because a good fairy had been busy during our absence. Days before, at the ranger's cabin, unknown to most of us, an order had gone down to civilization for food. During all those days under Starvation Ridge, food had been on the way by pack-horse, food and an extra cook. So we went up to camp, expecting more canned salmon and fried trout and little else, and beheld a festive board set with candles. The board, however, in this case, is figurative. It was the ground covered with a tarpaulin fried chicken, fresh green beans, real bread, jam, potatoes, cheese, cake, candy, cigars and cigarettes, and champagne. That champagne had travelled a hundred miles on horseback. It had been cooled in the icy water of the river. We drank it out of tin cups. We toasted each other. We toasted the flathead flowing just beside us. We toasted the full moon rising over the Kootenays. We toasted the good fairy. The candles burned low in their sockets. This also is figurative. They were stuck on pieces of wood. With due formality I was presented with a birthday gift, a fishing reel purchased by the big and middle and the little boy. Of all the birthdays that I can remember, and I remember quite a few, this one was the most wonderful over mountain-tops, glowing deep pink as they rose above masses of white clouds, came slowly a great yellow moon. It turned the flathead beside us to golden glory, and transformed the evergreen thickets into fairy glades of light and shadow. Flickering candles inside the tents made them glow in luminous triangles against their background of forest. Beside us, in the valley-lands at the foot of the Rockies, the horses rested and grazed and eased their tired backs. The men lay out in the open and looked at the stars. The air was fragrant with pine and balsam. Night creatures called and answered. And at last we went to our tents and slept. For the morning was a new day, and I had not got all my story. That first day's run of the river we got fifty trout ranging from one-half pound to four pounds. We should have caught more, but they could not keep up with the boat. We caught also the most terrific sunburn that I have ever known anything about. We had thought that we were thoroughly leathered, but we had not passed the primary stage, apparently. In vain I dosed my face with cold cream and talcum powder, and with a liquid warranted to restore the bloom of youth to an aged skin mine however is not aged my journal for the second day starts something like this cold and gray stood in the water fifteen minutes in hip boots for a moving picture river looks savage of that second day one beautiful picture stands out with distinctness the river is lovely it winds and twists through deep forest with always that marvelous background of purple mountains capped with snow here and there, at long intervals, would come a quiet half-mile, where, although the current was incredibly swift, there were at least no rocks. It was on coming round one of these bends that we saw, out from shore, and drinking quietly, a deer. 
He was incredulous at first, and then uncertain whether to be frightened or not. He threw his head up and watched us, and then, turning, leaped up the bank and into the forest. Except for fish, there was surprisingly little life to be seen. Bald eagles sat by the river as intent on their fishing as we were on ours. Wild ducks paddled painfully up against the current. Kingfishers fished in quiet pools. But the real interest of the river, its real life, lay in its fish. What piscine tragedies it conceals with those murderous, greedy, and powerful assassins, the bull-trout, pursuing fish as I have seen them almost into the landing-net! What joyous interludes where, in a sunny shallow, tiny baby trout played tag while we sat and watched them! The danger of the river is not all in the current. There are quicksands along the flathead, sands underlain with water, apparently secure, but reaching up clutching hands to the unwary. Our noonday luncheon, taken along the shore, was always on some safe and gravelly bank or tiny island. Our second camp on the flathead was less fortunate than the first. Always, in such an outfit as ours, the first responsibility is the horses. Camp must be made within reach of grazing grounds for them, and in these mountain and forest regions this is almost always a difficult matter. Here and there are meadows where horses may eat their fill, but generally pasture must be hunted. Often, long after we were settled for the night, our horses were still ranging far, hunting for grass. So, on this second night, we made an uncomfortable camp for the sake of the horses, a camp on a steep bluff sloping into the water in a dead forest. It had been the intention, as the river was comparatively quiet here, to swim the animals across and graze them on the other side. But although generally a horse can swim when put to it, we discovered too late that several horses in our string could not swim at all. In the attempt to get them across, one horse with a rider was almost drowned. So we gave that up, and they were driven back five miles into the country to pasture. There is something ominous and most depressing about a burnt forest. There is no life, nothing green. It is a ghost forest, filled with tall tree skeletons and the mouldering bones of those that have fallen, and draped with dry gray moss that swings in the wind. Moving through such a forest is almost impossible. Fallen and rotten trees, black and charred stumps, cover every foot of ground. It required two hours' work with an axe to clear a path that I might get to the little ridge on which my tent was placed. The day had been gray, and to add to our discomfort there was a fine, soft rain. The middle boy had developed an inflamed knee and was badly crippled. Sitting in the drizzle beside campfire, I heated water in a tin pail and applied hot compresses consisting of woolen socks. It was all in the game. Eggs tasted none the worse for being fried in a skillet into which the rain was pattering. Skins were weatherproof, if clothes were not, and heavy tarpaulins on the ground protected our bedding from dampness. The outfit, coming down by trail, had passed a small store in a clearing. They had bought a whole cheese weighing eleven pounds, a difficult thing to transport on horseback, 
a wooden pail containing nineteen pounds of chocolate chips, and six dozen eggs, our first eggs in many days. In the shop, while making the purchase, the head had pulled out a box of cigarettes. The woman who kept the little store had never seen machine-made cigarettes before, and examined them with the greatest interest. For in that country every man is his own cigarette-maker. The middle boy later reported with wide eyes that at her elbow she kept a loaded revolver lying in plain view. She is alone a great deal of the time there in the wilderness, and probably she has had many strange visitors. It was at the shop that a terrible discovery was made. We had been in the wilderness on the east side and then on the west side of the park for four weeks, and days in the woods are much alike. No one had had a calendar. The discovery was that we had celebrated my birthday on the wrong day. That night, in the dead forest, we gathered round the campfire. I made hot compresses. The packers and guides told stories of the west, and we matched them with ones of the east. From across the river, above the roaring, we could hear the sharp stroke of the axe as branches were being cut for our beds. There was nothing living, nothing green about us where we sat. I am aware that the campfire is considered one of the things about which the camper should rave. My own experience of campfires is that they come too late in the day to be more than a warming time before going to bed. We were generally too tired to talk. A little desultory conversation, a cigarette or two, an outline of the next day's work, and all were off to bed. Yet in that evergreen forest our fires were always rarely beautiful. The boughs burned with a crackling white flame, and when we threw on needles they burst into stars and sailed far up into the night. As the glare died down, each of us took his hot stone from its bed of ashes and, carrying it carefully, retired with it. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 through the Flathead Canyon. The next morning we wakened to sunshine and fried trout and bacon and eggs for breakfast. The cook tossed his flapjacks skillfully. As the only woman in the party, I sometimes found an air of festivity about my breakfast table. Whereas the others ate from a tarpaulin laid on the ground, I was favored with a small box for a table and a smaller one for a seat. On the table-box was set my granite-ware plate, knife, fork, and spoon, a paper napkin, the Prince Albert, and the St. Charles. Lest this sound strange to the uninitiated, the St. Charles was the condensed milk, and the Prince Albert was an old tin can, which had once contained tobacco, but which now contained the sugar. Thus, in our camp etiquette, one never asked for the sugar, but always for the Prince Albert not for the milk, but always for the St. Charles, sometimes corrupted to the Charlie. I was late that morning. The men had gone about the business of preparing the boats for the day. The packers and guides were out after the horses. The cook, hot and weary, was packing up for the daily exodus. He turned and surveyed that ghost for us with a scowl. Another camping place like this, and I'll be braying like a blooming burrow. On the third day we went through the Flathead River Canyon. We had looked forward to this, both because of its beauty and its danger. 
Bitterly complaining, the junior members of the family were exiled to the trail with the exception of the big boy. It had been Joe's plan to photograph the boat with the moving picture camera as we came down the canyon. He meant, I am sure, to be on hand if anything exciting happened, but impenetrable wilderness separated the trail from the edge of the gorge, and that evening we reached the camp unphotographed, unrecorded, to find Joe sulking in a corner, and inclined to blame the forest on us. In one of the very greatest stretches of the rapids, a long straightaway, we saw a pygmy figure, far ahead, hailing us from the bank. Pygmy is a word I use generally with much caution, since a friend of mine, in the excitement of a first baby, once published a poem entitled My Pygmy Counterpart, which a typesetter made in the magazine version My Pig, My Counterpart. Nevertheless, we will use it here. Behind this pygmy figure stretched a cliff, more than one hundred feet in height, of sheer rock overgrown with bushes. The figure had apparently but room on which to stand. George stood up and surveyed the prospect. "'Well,' he said, in his slow drawl, "'if that's lunch, I don't think we can hit it.' The river was racing at mad speed. Great rocks caught the current, formed whirlpools and eddies, turned us round again and again, and sent us spinning on, drenched with spray. That part of the river the boatman knew, at least by reputation. It had been the scene, a few years before, of the tragic drowning of a man they knew. For now we were getting down into the better-known portions. To check a boat in such a current seemed impossible, but we needed food. We were tired and cold, and we had a long afternoon's work still before us. At last, by tremendous effort and great skill, the boatman made the landing. It was the college boy who had clambered down the cliff and brought the lunch, and it was he who caught the boats as they were whirling by. We had to cling like limpets, whatever a limpet is, to the edge, and work our way over to where there was room to sit down. It reminded the head of Roosevelt's expression about peace raging in Mexico. He considered that enjoyment was raging here. Nevertheless, we ate. We made the inevitable cocoa, warmed beans, ate a part of the great cheese purchased the day before, and with ginger snaps and canned fruit managed to eke out a frugal repast, and shrieked our words over the roar of the river. It was here that the boats were roped down. Critical examination and long debate with the boatmen showed no way through. On the far side, under the towering cliff, was an opening in the rocks through which the river boiled in a drop of twenty feet. So it was fortunate, after all, that we had been hailed from the shore and had stopped, dangerous as it had been, for not one of us would have lived had we essayed that passage under the cliff. The Flathead River is not a deep river, but the force of its flow is so great, its drop so rapid, that the most powerful swimmer is hopeless in such a current. Light as our flies were, again and again they were swept under and held as though by a powerful hand. Another year, the Flathead may be a much simpler proposition to negotiate. Owing to the unusually heavy snows of last winter, which had not commenced to melt on the mountain tops until July, the river was high. 
In a normal summer I believe that this trip could be taken, although always the boatmen must be expert in river rapids, with comparative safety and enormous pleasure. There is a thrill and exultation about running rapids, not for minutes, not for an hour or two, but for days, that gets into the blood. And when to that exultation is added the most beautiful scenery in America, the trip becomes well worth while. However, I am not at all sure that it is a trip for a woman to take. I can swim, but that would not have helped at all had the boat at any time in those four days struck a rock and turned over. Nor would the men of the party, all powerful swimmers, have had any more chance than I. We were a little nervous that afternoon. The canyon grew wilder, the current, if possible, more rapid. But there were fewer rocks. The river-bed was clearer. We were rapidly nearing the middle fork. Another day would see us there, and from that point the river, although swift, would lose much of its danger. Late the afternoon of the third day we saw our camp well ahead, on a ledge above the river. Everything was in order when we arrived. We unloaded ourselves solemnly out of the boats, took our fish, our poles, our graft-hooks, and landing-nets, our fly-books, my sunburn lotion, and our weary selves up the bank. Then we solemnly shook hands all around. We had come through. The rest was easy. On the last day the river became almost a smiling stream. Once again, instead of between cliffs, we were traveling between great forests of spruce, tamarack, white and yellow pine, fir, and cedar. A great golden eagle flew over the water just ahead of our boat, and in the morning we came across our first sign of civilization, a wire trolley with a cage, extending across the river in lieu of a bridge. High up in the air at each end, it sagged in the middle, until the little car must almost have touched the water. We had a fancy to try it, and landed to make the experiment. But some ungenerous soul had padlocked it, and had gone away with the key. For the first time that day it was possible to use the trolling lines. We had tried them before, but the current had carried them out far ahead of the boat. Cutthroat trout now and then take a spoon, but it is the bull-trout which falls victim, as a rule, to the troll. I am not gifted with the trolling line. Sometime I shall write an article on the humours of using it, on the soft and sibilant hiss with which it goes out over the stern, on the rasping with which it grates on the edge of the boat as it holds on, staunch and true, to water-weeds and floating branches on the low moan with which it buries itself under a rock and dies, on the inextricable confusion into which it twists and knots itself, when, hand over hand, it is brought in for inspection. I have spent hours over a trolling line, hours which otherwise I should have wasted in idleness. There are thirty-seven kinds of knots, which so far I have discovered in a trolling line, and I am but at the beginning of my fishing career. "'What are you doing?' the head said to me that last day, as I sat in the stern, busily working at the line. "'Knitting?' We got a few fish that day, but nobody cared. The river was wide and smooth, the mountains had receded somewhat, 
The forest was there to the right and left of us. But it was an open, smiling forest. Still far enough away, but slipping toward us with the hours, were settlements, towns, the fertile valley of the lower river. We lunched that night where, just a year before, I had eaten my first lunch on the flathead on a shelving sandy beach. But this time the meal was somewhat shadowed by the fact that someone had forgotten to put in butter and coffee and condensed milk. However, we were now in that part of the river which our boatman knew well. From a secret cache back in the willows, George and Mike produced coffee and condensed milk and even butter. So we lunched, and far away we heard a sound which showed us how completely our wilderness days were over—the screech of a railway locomotive. Late that afternoon, tired, sunburned, and unkempt, we drew in at the little wharf near Columbia Falls. It was weeks since we had seen a mirror larger than an inch or so across. Our clothes were wrinkled from being used to augment our bedding on cold nights. The whites of our eyes were bloodshot with the sun. My old felt hat was battered and torn with the fish-hooks that had been hung round the band. Each of us looked at the other, and prayed to heaven that he looked a little better himself. End of chapter 8